0: Hey everybody, welcome back. We are here at 12 Mile Limit. This is T. Cole Newton. I'm with my co-host Steve Yamada at 12 Mile Limit in Mid-City New Orleans for a round with Steve and Cole.
1: Hey y'all, welcome back. Um, This is kind of a fun time for us as well because at this point we have actually physically launched the podcast. We have some listeners out there. We know there's a couple of you actually, uh, a lot more than we had expected to have, so thank you so much for that. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a good, good week of a couple first things as well, too. So, I mean, this is our first podcast that we know that we're actually talking to some people, and as well as that, we also have a fantastic guest in-house. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir?
2: Well, thank you for the lovely introduction. Uh, my name is Michael Domang. I am the quizmaster here at 12 Mile Limit, hosting trivia every Wednesday night. You also wear
0: a couple of other hats. You want to talk a bit more about your side gig?
2: Oh, yeah. My side gig, if you will, is uh, I'm one of the managers at the Broad Theater, uh, the newest movie theater here in New Orleans. Uh, We've been open officially one year as of this past weekend, which would have been March 4th if you're listening later on down the road. Uh, So we're very excited about that. I, uh, I head up marketing for the theater as well as IT, and I also work on a lot of the special events for the theater.
1: Awesome. I think that's a really great segue as well. So on uh, this uh, week's podcast, we're going to be discussing uh, event planning and special events. Um, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to talk about you know how bars work and and a little bit of an insider look at the industry as a whole. And I definitely loop in, you know, restaurants, bars, the service industry, uh, the broad theater, which we talked about on our first episode, as just being these integral uh, cultural and community assets as well. Um, So uh, I guess to frame it and kind of bring it all into like, uh, into uh, respect is uh, what is the purpose of special events for our, for our different businesses? What would you say, Cole?
0: I think for us, a lot of our special event programming is based on expectations from our guests. So on, an, uh, on a night like New Year's Eve, on a night like Endymion, which is the one major Mardi Gras party for Mid-City, people expect us to have programming. They're looking for us to have programming. And if we don't do a big event on one of those nights, people will wonder why. People will feel a bit let down because we're, we're a lot of people's favorite bars without tooting our own horn too much. And people want on these major going out nights these major event days to have something at their favorite bar to do, because that's where they would prefer to be. So we're just trying to meet the demand from our guests on a, on nights like those.
2: And I think with the broad, it, it's, it's not quite the exact opposite, but I do feel like being a relatively new business, there's very few expectations from our guests. So in a lot of ways, when we're doing special events, it's about introducing new audiences to our space. Uh, so when we do field trips or we do birthday parties uh, these are opportunities for people who haven't visited our theater before to come in uh, to see what we're about to see how we operate to see the services that we provide and so when we do a lot of these private events and special events we get new eyeballs and people are like i didn't even know y'all existed or i just heard about y'all but i haven't had a chance to stop on by this is fantastic uh, so in a lot of ways, it's it's been great for us to uh, to get new folks into the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think reaching audiences that you don't typically reach out to is is very key with special events. I mean, uh, I think. Uh, being inclusive and really reaching out to the community and showing as many people as possible what you're trying to do with your bar restaurant movie theater whatever your business is is essential to the survival of your business in whole especially in a marketplace where there's so much competition and there's so much uh so much demand for people's attention for consumers attention um i also think i mean flat out it's just an, it is an economic tool as well uh we Tend to do programming and special events on nights that it, it is going to be slower. It gives us a little more flexibility as well to be able to, you know, execute these events without, you know, disappointing our regulars, which is a big thing. If you try and drop a special event onto like a Friday or Saturday night, typically, and you've got a crowd that's coming in, that might disturb the regular flow of business, which is not good. Um, and so it gives you that leeway there, but it also is a driving force to bring people into your establishment on nights when you might not have people coming in.
0: Well, there's a there's a few different lenses to look at special events through we do our weekly programming or a monthly programming something like our heatwave dance party which is actually this coming saturday if you uh have the inclination to come by actually it won't be this coming Saturday by the time this airs it'll be a few <laughs> weeks out but as we record it's this coming Saturday coming I'm not the really future. I don't really think of that necessarily as special event programming because it's a regular program something like the trivia that that Mikey here hosts that we do every Wednesday night that was designed yet yeah, to bring people in on a night that was otherwise very slow Same reason we do a lot of our Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday night programming on those nights is that we just generally don't have a large crowd that we'd be displacing. We're not getting in the way, and we're bringing people in. But there's also the big sort of annual parties that I was talking about earlier, which also are people expected, but it's not necessarily our hardest regulars that are the ones that expect it. It's the people that are here. I describe our – we have like several different sort of tiers of regulars. We have our regulars that are here – five to ten times a week, and they will be here no matter what, but they'll actually sort of steer clear on those big nights like New Year's or Endymion, and then we have our, you know, people who are here once a month for parties or once a week for trivia and then we have people that are really only here on those big
1: nights. And those are the people I'm talking about that are expecting us to throw them a big party, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point, Cole. Let's rewind a little bit to a point that you just brought up because I would really like some perspective on this personally. Because I feel like I was one of those regulars at this bar for a really long time who kind of avoided special events, free food Mondays, trivia for a long time. Um, and I'm not, <laughs> I like to dance. I'm not a good dancer. So heat wave is not exactly my, uh, you know, is, isn't my, you know, Bag, for the most part. (laughs) Bag, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Not (laughs) your bag. So let's let's, uh, talk to you guys a little bit about uh, how Geeks Who Drink started a 12-mile limit and uh, how you guys established it and some of the successes and challenges you've had throughout
2: the years. So we started. I, if I can remember the exact date, I believe it was June seventh of two thousand thirteen. Uh, I remember our anniversary call. Um, <laughs> what are you getting him this jig? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, and so, from from my perspective, uh, geeks who drink basically hired me earlier that summer, maybe even April or May of that year, as a quiz master with no expectation of having a venue. They basically hire you, and you're assigned a venue once one's available. Um,
0: I was approached earlier that year by Geeks Who Drink, the national quiz company. They were looking to expand into the New Orleans market. And we were looking to do a trivia night. I've always been a fan of trivia nights at bars. I've gone to, I, I was a regular at the 45 chop trivia night for, for many years. And then no longer, once I owned a bar of my own, I had to be here a lot and I couldn't go out to other trivia nights. So it was something, it was programming that I was looking to do. But a lot of the programming that we have is it, it's, it's a real big lift to do trivia nights internally. It's a big, uh it's a very demanding thing to put together a well balanced uh fair interesting trivia and geeks who drink being a national company they can do that at a they have an economy of scale so having them come in be able to present us with this very professional very complete package it was it was great and i should say a lot of our a lot of our regular programming all of the stuff that's really stuck has been someone else sort of Presenting me with the concept that I've been looking to do already. So, Heatwave Dance Party. I would, I really wanted to have a regularly occurring dance party, but it wasn't until somebody came to me and said, here is the package. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly the package that we're looking for. Because promoting it internally, you're really in an echo chamber. You're basically speaking to all of your regulars already. But anytime that an outside company or an outside person comes with that kind of program, they're promoting it and you're promoting it and you're reaching almost twice
1: the audience. Right. So, um, so it's interesting, last week, um, at this point it's very established and there's, there's a core group of people who will come in, like, even on, like, Mardi Gras week, we still had five, six, seven, eight teams that exactly, were participating. Yeah. On our busiest nights, there'll be almost 20 teams, 20 teams of five, up to five people competing. This place gets packed on trivia nights. Now, when you first started off, I, I believe you made a comment last week as well that it used to be, like, four teams competing or something like that.
2: I, you know, maybe the first month... We were low in numbers, but relatively quickly, we've had numbers average around a dozen teams for the length of our run here. And I think that goes to show not so much the initial popularity of trivia, but the initial popularity of 12 Mile Limit as a venue and the accessibility of the venue. Mm. I've hosted at other venues, and they've all been short-term hostings. Because all the other venues that I've worked at have been located in more tourist centralized areas of the city, Mm -hmm. whether it's in CBD, whether it's on, excuse me, uh, Loyola. Um, these are areas that don't have a lot of parking available, that have a clientele that's constantly changing. It's hotel clientele. It's tourists who are coming in for conferences. And you can't build that relationship with your audience in those types of bars. So what's worked with 12 Mile Limit is they already had regulars. They had those people, like you've said, uh, like Cole said, who have been here you know five, ten times a week, who've been here once a week. And so it was easy to bring those people along initially. And then other teams have come in one time just to check it out. And they're now regulars not only to trivia, but to 12 Mile Limit.
0: Which is great. And I do think we had a clientele that was naturally fit for trivia. That we have a, I, I, We're not a bar that lends itself to college students exactly, but we're a bar that sort of lends itself more to grad students. Yes. Our prices are reasonable, um, but we also we have a lot of... Of nerdy things that we 're into uh, vinyl records, comic books, board games, all of those things are very well represented here, and people who like those kinds of things are the kinds of people who are who gravitate towards the sort of competitive uh, recall of useless information that is trivia that is that 's the format so people well, as soon as we announced that we were going to have a trivia night. A lot of our regulars were like, "Oh, finally! I've been hoping <laughs> that you guys would start doing that." So it it picked up pretty
1: quickly to yeah. get to a to a really sustainable level, right? I um I full admission here. Uh, I don't like bar trivia nights. I don't like going to bar trivia nights. That was one thing that kind of turned me off a little bit. Um, and I think that's actually more from poor experiences with bar experiences night. It really takes a great moderator, somebody who keeps the crowd engaged, keeps the pace of the quiz going. Absolutely, is extremely important. And I mean. Uh, Finn McCools has a really interesting bar trivia that's like, you know, super crowded and it's interesting. Um, I get a little bit lost in the crowd over there, so I don't it's not something I typically like, but I know a lot of people for years have really enjoyed that trivia night. Um most of my experience with other pub trivia's come from national companies and other geeks who drink experiences as well too, which I think is exactly what you were talking about, Mikey. Um, with um, you know, in more tourist uh, locations. One one um instance particular was uh, on Ferrette Street. It's uh, at that bar that's no longer open. I think it's called the Poor House or the Tap House. It was a music venue.
2: Oh uh public house, public house, that's yes, the one, yes, yeah, yes, public yes.
1: For the queue, yeah, uh, yeah, but that's the one, um, so it's still empty now, I think it's turning into a gym, which is a weird transition from being a, uh, a music venue, <sighs> mm. but I remember going, I don't think I'm pretty positive you weren't the host there that nope, night, nope, but nope, uh nope. whoever was running it was just very vacant, I mean it ended up being about a three and a half hour long experience, no food, expensive drinks, just like at the end of the night, I was just like,
2: get on with it, you know <laughs> i
1: it's
2: it's it's. I'm not going to spend any time on this podcast bespurching my fellow Geeks Who Drink Quizmasters. I believe there's uh, policies, in fact, against that in my my contract. (laughs) Um, What I will say is I take very seriously sort of what – we have a Quizmaster Bible that we have available to us. And Geeks Who Drink provides a lot of training if you ask for it. They give you a lot of autonomy if you're not interested in sort of like asking your supervisor, asking your regional managers uh, to do your own thing, to do your own quiz. I do a very unique style of Geeks Who Drink compared to other quiz masters around the country. Um, and I realized that when I finally met some of them, they had a quizmaster convention here <laughs> in New Orleans last year. And I realized that my style is different from in other cities. Um, But I take very seriously the idea that this is a two-hour quiz, that uh, the bar has been told that it's a two-hour quiz, and that my job is to entertain these people for two hours— and not to drag it past that point, and not to end before that point. And so to me, a lot of what I do is timing and making sure that the quiz starts properly on time at 8 and ends as close to 10 as humanly possible. And that's something that I do behind the scenes that I'm not really talking about to the people who are in the bar, but it's for the bartenders, really, and it's my job is to make sure that the bartenders are you know treated well at the end of the night and that the bar you know mm-hmm. makes money.
1: I think that's a big thing with all special events that are planned too as well knowing the the amount of time that you can successfully engage your audience is super important. That two hours for a quiz is the perfect time. If it goes, if it goes longer, if it goes three and a half hours, I mean, it's it just You've becomes a bit them. of a chore. And then also, it's well, most of these are on weeknights. People have jobs. People want to get out of here. Ten o'clock
0: is the time when people are essentially done with their evenings. Most you know day walkers are done with
1: their evenings. They need to get home. They need to get to bed. Oh, we are in a golden age of TV as well. There's so much TV to watch. How <laughs> can I mean, you go out to a bar and play trivia?
2: and 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 the other thing for me is i sense the crowd energy you know when you're a quizmaster when you're any sort of mc for an event you have to gauge that audience energy just like a dj Making the slow records versus the fast ones, depending on how the mood is going. Um, so with me, that final round, round eight, I love doing 80s montage music in the last round.
1: <laughs> we love it too, by the way. I don't know. I don't know if Cole is, but I, I love it every time I hear it. I'll just say, it not every,
0: I mean, if finding the right personality is a very, very important thing. I, I, I'm sure Mike remembers this, that when we first started, I was very adamant with Geeks Who Drink that in the instance that there was a conflict, that I be allowed to control the music that was played. I've not
2: heard of this. No, I,
0: but no, no, you actually asked me about it after our first uh, quiz or two. You okay. were like, "Oh, the the geeks who drink told me that you might want to exercise more control over the playlist," and I said that I only wanted to be sure that I was able to exercise that control <laughs> if I needed to. There's a clause but in your contract, Mikey. <laughs> Mikey here has been very good about playing music that's not necessarily the music that I would have picked per per se, but that fits with the culture of the bar, with the culture of the quiz itself that our regulars respond to, that, that it just fits. And same with, same with Heatwave. We actually had a recurring dance party before Heatwave that we tried to put in place, but the, the DJ really wanted to lean towards more electronic dance music. And Heatwave is focused more on oldies dance music. And that's just more our vibe. And so finding the right personalities for these events, and we've had other quiz masters that come in and they play music that doesn't really work with our demographic sometimes, and it's no fault of theirs. They, they do a competent job of, of orchestrating the quiz, but the personalities just don't mesh quite as well. Yeah, And, and, and Mike, that, thanks, Mikey,
1: for being the right personality for the bar. I, I want to get it on the record as well. Uh, I love your taste in music. We've talked about the thermals before. And a couple of weeks back, you played uh, a song from Polaris, the band. Uh, in Pete from and Pete, Pete, and Pete, and Pete and Pete yeah, Pete. <laughs> not, not, and not the theme song, the song from the episode where they were a garage band. From a
2: Hard Days, Pete. Yes. Thank you. Yes, a Thank great you. episode. Great episode.
1: <laughs> uh, so um, let's pull it out a little bit. Uh, that's, that's our trivia night. That's a very specific example of a recurring event that we have. Uh, but between the three of us, we have a, uh, just... A lot of experience with hosting other types of events. I think bringing up the point as well that being cognizant of who your audience is and making sure to engage them is a big point. I think that's a big point right now. Um, And I'm not sure if you've dealt with this at all, um, Mikey, at all. But with bartenders, pop-ups are a really big thing at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, so like with pop-ups in the bar industry, which is the only thing I can really speak to. um, You know, at a time it was. It's it's still very trendy now. But for a while there was this like anomaly where it's like you know people were doing these pop-ups and it was this event to go go out and try something one time and it's gonna be really great and people put a ton of effort into it. And I think that like with that popularity, the concept has been a little bit watered down. Uh, a lot of pop up start up now and usually just be like, here's a single idea, and then we're going to do it. And it's nothing more than like a guest shift, you know? I've always found that the most successful events are things that like are thought through, and there's a little more effort put into it, and they're a little bit immersive, you know? Like, you know, something as simple as getting decorations or having custom-made menus or logo or, you know, some sort of promotion as well, too, so... I don't know where I'm really going with this for the most part.
2: But. Well, well, let me talk about the broads experience because we actually do offer pop-up kitchens Thursday through Sunday as part of our offerings. Um, as of right now, being a year into the business, we do not have a fully staffed kitchen. Um, that is our plan for the future is to have our own kitchen in-house serving food to go with our popcorns and soda and all that jazz. Um, but right now we have pop-ups on the weekends, and it's, it's a rotating staff of pop-ups. And it's rotating because... Pop-ups, unlike a normal restaurant, they could be here one Thursday and then have a wedding next Thursday or move to Denver the Thursday (laughs) after that. Um, These things happen. So we've had a number of pop-up kitchens uh, come through, some of them very successful, some of which haven't. And what we've found with pop-ups specifically in a movie theater setting Mm -hmm. is um, the food has to work in a dark movie theater. And a lot of chefs don't think of that basic concept Mm -hmm. of – how do I eat this in the dark? Right. And how do I turn this around quickly when I have 100 people in a line trying to see a movie that starts in five minutes? Right.
1: I would say an example for me, and uh, I went to go see a movie there recently. I'm, I'm not even going to name names. That's not nice to name names for things. But one of those movie theaters where you can have like a dining experience and there's servers who come in and stand in front of you while you're trying to <laughs> dine. Well, um, one of the main things there, which is always distracting for me, is they they have dips there and like hummuses and spreads and things like that. That's a perfect example where exactly. that might not be a great food to ha- try to enjoy in the dark, because you're kind of fumbling around. It's like, where's that hummus with my knife? And you're scraping plates while this movie's playing, and then I'm sitting there with popcorn, just like, you guys are doing it wrong. <laughs> what are <do> you just <laughs> doing it wrong? Um, wh- Steve,
0: I'd actually be curious to hear a bit about your pop-up history, because you did a couple of soda pop pop-ups that were really fun back... Uh, this was years ago. Oh, yeah, I yeah. probably to, This yeah. was um,
1: five or six s- years ago. So I, I think that, like... Um, Back when I started craft cocktail bartending, um, I had a hard time breaking into the industry. There weren't as many jobs that were available, and definitely restaurants weren't geared towards having craft cocktail programs. So the ability to work with classic cocktails and fresh ingredients weren't in the city. You kind of had to create your own opportunities. Um, And a great friend of mine, Jeffrey Wilson, who now lives in Portland— um, me and him would always talk about ideas that we had and we would always kind of workshop different, uh, techniques that were like interesting. And, um, at the time I was really into Jeffrey Morgenthaler's blog, which, you know, it's, it's a great resource. It's still out there. He doesn't update anymore cause he's busy writing books and, you know, doing interviews for playboy, but, um, he, uh, he was exploring the concept of carbonated cocktails. Um, so I just remember sitting in Jeffrey's apartment one day and we were like, well, the nat to me, the natural evolution of a carbonated beverage is soda of course. So we just started spitballing back and forth, like, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we did this? And slowly from that, we built this concept of, what if we did, like, this 50s-era, like, malt shop cocktail, and we did all cocktails, but the cocktails were themed around classic soda flavor. So we'd have a cola flavor, an orange flavor, and a grape flavor. And we moved on from there, because... Once again, that kind of that uh, kind of that idea that I was saying beforehand, where it's like you stop at some point and you say, OK, that's good enough and we can do this. Then we designed a label for it. we came up with a name. We called it the pop shop. Uh, we got uniforms, uh, white shirts with bow ties. We got paper hats and put logos on those as well. Um, and we did some promotion. We were we were smart. We involved uh, Chris Hanna, who's always been you know a great mentor for us in the industry, but he's also a great press magnet as well. So <laughs> the minute that he was involved, uh, uh, you know, we definitely were featured on NOLA.com and Nola Eater, and it was it was fantastic. We made about I think we probably had about six hundred servings of. And and by the way, this was before all the equipment was out there to make like bottled cocktails. So when we did pre bottled carbonate cocktails, we had to buy the uh, the the bottles, which are miniature soda bottles, are seven fives, I believe. Oh. And we would have to carbonate in plastic soda bottles and then pour every single soda into those and then cap them all individually and then label them all individually. So that's 600 of those that we did in our spare time and we brought them in. And we ran out and the response was amazing. The community was really fantastic and super supportive, but we ran out in an hour, I think. And We were planning <laughs> on it being... That's, that's a perfect example as well of not really knowing how long in the demand and like knowing how to engage your audience for a long period of time I guess but you know sometimes you don't know what the demand is going to be but um I I, not to toot my own horn but I I look at that as being a complete pop-up like you know really looking at it and we had a playlist too Jeffrey put together a really great playlist of 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 classic music from the era of the time that we were like looking at and I think that that was just kind of taking a couple extra small steps in order to make a better experience i also think what was the the venue for the first you did two of those right yeah the first one the was first at st in- lawrence okay and it was it was me sam kane jeffrey wilson and chris hannah mm-hmm. and then we had an opportunity to do it a second time and then we did it at it was faubourg wines the it second. was faubourg i wines, really yeah. liked the one at faubourg wines because i think one of the
0: advantages of a pop-up or one of the fun things that people tend to enjoy about pop-ups is seeing uh you know seeing a cocktail program Outside of a context where you would typically see a cocktail program. Yeah. So a bar like St. Lawrence, they have a cocktail program. You can go there and drink cocktails on a normal night. So it wasn't so far out of the realm of normal for that space. Mm-hmm. Whereas Foburg wine, you can go and you can get a glass of wine there, but you you can't get a cocktail there on any other night. Yeah. So being able being in that space to do that kind of program, mm-hmm. I think is one of the things that that pop ups really can offer people is is a way to use their space in a in a
1: to do something different than what they normally do. Right. Absolutely. Um, So uh, pop-ups, we've got weekly events as well too. What are other uh, special events that we have experience with as well too? I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about when we talked about
0: this as a theme for one of our programs was when to stop throwing a party. I've done an Endymion party pretty much every year in some measure or another and after the first couple of years the bar was open, there were, you, there used to be a, a, a blighted house across the street, and then it was torn down, and then there was just... Now, for the last few years, there's just been an empty lot across the street from the bar, and for every year that that lot was available, we threw a very large block party for Endymion, and we had bands, and we had food trucks, and we went all out. We had a pop-up bar across the street, and it it started off as being the super fun thing that we did on a lark and then the second year the bands really wanted to come back and do it again so we came back and did it again but both bands had become increasingly popular so the cost of the bands increased and then next (laughs) year darn (laughs) them i know how dare you succeed (laughs) and then the next year the we we capped the like we can't not afford to pay the bands anymore but you know, that licensing with the city and the insurance and all these costs that piled up. This past Endymion was the first year in the last four years that I opted out of doing that party. I just decided, you know what, we we don't make money from this. And it used to be a good outreach because I knew that there would be a lot of people in mid-city during Endymion who don't get to mid-city a lot if we could draw those people to the bar we can really show what we do to a lot of new people which is again one of the things we talked about the advantage for events but they've been three years running to this party and eventually like the first two years it scaled up and it scaled up and then the third year we did it it fell off a little bit and i think part of that is just throwing the same exact party three years in a row you're gonna have a little bit a fall off there. That's just not new and exciting anymore. And there are a number of other factors. There's there's more bars in mid city than there used to be that can draw people in. And ultimately it seemed like this year that instead of throwing the big party that we act, we just don't, we open the doors, we get a DJ for an after party, but we don't have bands. We don't have the extra insurance. We don't have the food trucks. We don't have any of the hassle, the huge lift of throwing this major event. And we actually came within, I mean, probably cost something like $3,000 less to, to, to pull off Endymion this year. And we came within $50 of our liquor sales from the previous year. So essentially, we made an extra $3,000 by doing a lot less. And I think eventually, the advantages of throwing a party get out, you know, they dissipate over time if you're having, you know, the first time you throw a pop-up, 100 people come. The second time... Maybe more people come
1: third time, maybe
0: less people come. Do you still have that party?
1: Yeah, diminishing returns on kind of investment as well, too. Like, you know, the advantage of having a special event is that it's keyword special, right? Uh, So let's switch it over, Uh, stop talking about nerdy bar stuff and talk about some nerdy film stuff a little bit as well, too. Um, So, Mikey, with uh, doing screenings as well, um, me and Cole had the opportunity to see Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, Uh... uh, which was the first time Cole had ever seen Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is a fantastic thing to (laughs) share an experience with a friend like that at the Broad. Um, And I've talked to you a little bit about this. Uh, Talk to me about the challenges of doing these one-off screenings or special screenings?
2: Oh, it's such a unique opportunity because it's the exact opposite of how you normally book a film at a movie theater. The normal booking process is um, you're in constant conversation with a preset booker. Our bookers are based out of LA. They have constant conversation with the studios and we bring together a slate. Um, When you're doing a special event, it's our job in the theater to search out the film find who has the rights to the film, secure those rights, and then start the advertising for the event. So you're doing it all in-house. In the example of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the reason why I love that project so much for Halloween was because no one expected us to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had mentioned to everyone at the theater you know, the the idea of showing Halloween on Halloween has been done across the country many times over, and it works, and it's a traditional Halloween event, and I've seen these before, but... I lived in Austin for five, six years. I went to film school there at UT Austin. And the Alamo Drafthouse is a heavy, heavy influence on how I view booking and special events. And every year for Halloween, they didn't show Halloween. They showed Halloween for the and return for of Michael, Michael Myers. Myers. <laughs> what a choice. And And it was that idea of like... Just subtly subverting the expectation, showing a horror movie, but instead of showing Nightmare on Elm Street, let's show the third one, which in some cases is is the best of the franchise.
1: Best music, clearly, it's got yeah. Young Larry Fishburne.
2: Exactly. Um, oh, no, that's- is that number two? No, 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 that's number three. That's three. Yeah, oh. yeah, he plays uh, one of the orderlies, I believe, in the hospital.
0: I think that's accurate. And uh, Patricia
2: Arquette, too. Uh, Patricia Arquette in her first starring role. Uh, but we can go into the history of number three, <laughs> three for Oh, Oh, we're talking about no, name Or three I was like Halloween.
1: I was like, what was, it for? It was not in Halloween? Um,
2: <laughs> but with an event like that, what works, what's great about it is the rights for some of these classic films are, are relatively affordable for even an independent movie theater to get. Uh, I won't go into specific details, but... Um, you can do a screening of that in a theater of our size, and if you bring in a half-full house, it's a profitable event. And once again, you're bringing in people who maybe haven't been to your theater at all, but just really like Nightmare on Elm Street, and typically with these special events, our drink sales are higher than they normally would.
1: Oh, that's an interesting point.
2: Um, With a movie theater like us with a full bar, um, you can get away with a film that loses money on the rights but makes money on the alcohol sales. If you have a movie that sort of invites more of a a party-drinking crowd, Mm -hmm. if those liquor sales go up, then that event is a success no matter how many people you bring in. Awesome. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Cool. Well, we're running a little short on time here, so uh, there's one more thing that I want to bring out, because as much as we could support the Broad Theater and promote <laughs> what's coming up with them, uh, I think the better, because the more successful that place is, the better it is for all of us in Mid-City, I think. So, uh, Mikey, what special events are coming up at the Broad Theater?
2: I think the one thing to talk about, if we have a limited amount of time, is $2 Tuesday. It's coming up in April. Um, it has been a project of ours for a few months now. We, we announced it about two weeks ago. Uh, every Tuesday in April, we're going to be doing a $2 cult movie. It's going to be Wild at Heart, uh, by David Lynch, Blood Sport, the yes. 80s ah, Kumite
1: the, classic. Still the best USA.
2: Uh, the Lair of the White Worm, which is by Ken Russell, who did the, the movie version of Tommy. Uh, and then you have Buckaroo Banzai, which is just one of the most crazy. I, there's no way to explain it. Just Google Buckaroo Banzai, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's
1: a little rock and roll RoboCop action. It's now.
2: amazing. Peter Weller, just classic <laughs> role. So we're doing that. Um, every Tuesday, it's $2. We're actually working with a pop-up kitchen uh, on some ideas for $2 dishes as well. Oh, cool. That's some ideas that we're throwing out, trying to see what works with that. Uh, but it's really about, you know, putting it in the largest house, packing the house, doing a sellout crowd for $2 tickets, and uh, having some fun with some cult movies.
1: Awesome. Cole, what's coming up at 12 Mile Limit? Oh, let's see.
0: We've got every—the second Saturday of every month is our Heatwave Dance Party. We touched on that a little bit. I'm just going to talk a bit about regular programming. We have every Wednesday night at 8 p.m., Geeks Who Drink Trivia. 8 p.m. on the dot. 8 p.m. on the dot, and it ends right at 10. Mikey's very diligent. (laughs) And uh, every Monday, we have free food at 7 and 8. Changes every week. T- tends to be made by our friend uh, Michael Devine. He does a lot of tacos and pasta dishes, and then after that on Mondays we host a open mic comedy night where I occasionally perform. I actually once had the opportunity at my own bar to follow up Hannibal Burris, who came to <laughs> and worked on some material, and that was a that was a lot of fun for me.
1: Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, thanks for listening to us ramble a little bit about our own personal experiences and some cool things that are happening in the city. Uh, we're going to leave it off there uh, for this episode of Around with Stephen Cole. I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton.
2: And I'm Michael Domingue.
1: Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.